We welcome you. This is message number one on our brand new series. We've entitled the series, as you can see, Vital Signs. This is a verse-by-verse study through the amazing book of 1 John. Now, as a pastor, I'm asked a lot of questions. I'm sure in your area, your profession, you're asked a lot of questions. The questions I'm asked are probably different than the ones that you know, are asked of you. But as I reminisced and I thought about some of the questions I've been asked, I've been asked this, you're a pastor? Why? I've been asked, wait a minute, you're married and you're a pastor? Is that allowable? I've been asked, so what's it like being a priest? And I go, no, I don't do that. I've been asked, so you, you talk to God? And I say, yeah, of course, every day. And then usually the question that follows that is, you talk to God, you pray, you're a holy man, can you pray that I would win the lottery? I've been asked that you don't know how many times. I've been asked, have you ever seen God? And of course I say, no, but I see him in his word all the time and in his people. I've been asked, have you ever been to heaven? No. You ever seen heaven? No. I've been asked just about every single question in the Bible imaginable. But one of the most common and really the most tender of all questions that I'm often asked, and it comes from a person who by virtue of them asking the question is opening themselves up and, and, and becoming vulnerable with me. And so I love the question. They'll say, you know, um, how can I know I'm a Christian? And usually they're asking me that question because they want to make sure they're going to go to heaven. Or I'll get this form of the question. A a parent will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, um, I have a son or daughter. How can I know they're really saved? And they're asking me that question because they want to make sure their son or daughter, someone they love so much, is going to be with them in heaven. And I also get this question a form of it, Uh, pastor, uh, there's this person I know, you know, I care for them, I see them at work, they're a friend, you know, and they say they're a Christian, but I'm not sure they are a Christian. I mean, is there a way we can know someone is saved or not saved, and if so, how? I mean, this person I'm thinking about dating, you know, and I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure they are, and how can I know genuinely if they are saved or not? You see, regardless of the motive behind the question being asked, few questions are more important than knowing if you or someone else possesses eternal life. And wouldn't it be great if there were a book in the Bible that was written to give us the assurance that we possess eternal life, that we're saved? Enter the book of 1 John. Take your Bibles. Turn to 1 John chapter 5 and go to verse 13 because here we have the key verse for the whole book. This is John's stated purpose for his book. Now, not all books in the Bible give us their purpose, but 1 John does. And verse 13, chapter 5, says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the stated purpose for the whole book. 
Now, let's point out several important things from this verse. First of all, the writer says, I write. I. Who's the I there? This is the Apostle John. This is the John who was the three of the most intimate of all of Jesus' disciples. There's Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen. Later, Jesus would call James and John the sons of thunder because of their attitude, their zest, their zeal for the kingdom of God. This is John, the disciple that Jesus loved, who wrote 1 John. This is John, the author of the Gospel of John, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the author of the book of Revelation. And he says, I write these things, that these things are the five chapters in the book, 105 incredible verses. And he says, I write these things to you. Who was the you? Well, these are believers in Ephesus and in the surrounding region of Ephesus. We call this a general epistle because it was written to a general audience, not to one particular church, but to multiple churches in the area. You know, John, he was the only disciple not martyred for his faith. Did you know that? All the other disciples were martyred, executed for their faith, but not John. Actually, John was the only disciple who survived his own execution. When a cauldron of boiling oil could not kill John, Emperor Diocletian, this is in history, exiled him to the island of Patmos. And it was there that John wrote the book of Revelation. And then he returned to Ephesus where he wrote the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he died of natural causes around 100 A.D., But if you go back in time to 70 A.D., you're saying, what's John doing in Ephesus? I thought, you know, the church began in Jerusalem and then spread out. Yes, that's true. But in 70 A.D., something happened big time to Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And as a result of that, John made a move. He moved to Ephesus, Ephesus, the capital, the intellectual center for Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Now, many of you in this room just a few months ago went with me to Turkey, and we visited many of the churches that John pastored. See, John pastored, he would oversee, he kind of served as a bishop and overseer for many, multiple churches in the region of Ephesus and Asia Minor, including the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. And we visited many of these churches, didn't we? Here's some pictures that I want us to look at. Uh, Here's, why am I showing you this? Because John would have walked that street. This is a street in Ephesus. The next picture. John definitely would have seen that building right there. It's a library. Behind that library is the school of Tyrannus, where the apostle Paul taught, where John certainly would have taught. Go on. Here's Laodicea. John pastored. He oversaw the work, the ministry here. John would have visited here in Laodicea, the next church. This is the church at uh, Philadelphia. John would have been here. Next. Here's where Thomas was uh, martyred and then buried. John would have visited this area. This is uh, Pergamum. And uh, again, an area where John would have visited. 
Here's literally the tomb of St. John where he's buried. These places are historical. And it's an amazing thing that John lived in history. This is real. Well, it says here, you know, that also we know that 1 John really was written, this book, around 90 to 95 A.D., scholars believe, in the latter part of John's life in his 80s and 90s. And it says here, as we come back to 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe. Who's he writing these things to? You who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing this book to believers, that's who he has in mind, who place their faith in Jesus, and then why? So that you may know you have eternal life. Now, why would that be necessary? The word know is oida. It means to understand, to have full conviction, to have confidence, assurance of what? Eternal life. Why would John have the need to write a a letter to believers in this area and coming to us today to assure them of everlasting life? Why would that be the case? Well, because false teachers from the pagan culture in that Greco-Roman world in the first century were invading the church, and they were finding their way into the church, and were trying to undermine the faith of true believers, causing doubt and confusion, especially about salvation. Have you ever been confused about your own salvation? Am I saved? You hear something, and the enemy's good at causing doubt. And we're going to discuss the nature of these false teachers that John was facing. They were called Gnostics and Docetists and others that later. But John, he wrote 1 John to give believers the confidence that regardless of the false teaching around them, uh, you as a believer can have assurance, confidence that you are genuinely saved, that you're genuinely going to go to heaven, that you belong to Jesus. And John is saying, I've written this entire book to give you believers oida, confidence, assurance, knowledge that you possess eternal life. And this brings us to really the theme of 1 John that I'm calling vital signs, the indicators of spiritual life. You see, John, in his book, reveals for us the vital signs or indicators of genuine spiritual eternal life. Now, how do you know if someone possesses physical life? You simply look at their physical vital signs. Now, I don't know if you heard this story. This is amazing. Her name is Janina Kolowaski. Age 91. Did you hear this story about her? She's from Poland. Her doctor pronounced her dead after he said she registered no vital signs. She then woke up in the morgue 11 hours later in a body bag to the shock of the mortuary staff to her doctor and her family greatest thing I love about her, the first thing she said is this. <laughs> she said, can I have some pancakes? <laughs> you got to love that. You just got to love that. Vital signs are very important, okay? If they're not registering, people are going to think you're dead. You know, uh, years ago, I was doing a wedding over here in the chapel, and the uncle of the groom had a heart attack. In, in the last row, and paramedics rushed in, and I'm praying and looking at him, at, and just they're operating on this guy, and they're checking, you know, his blood pressure and his respiration, his skin pigmentation and his eyes and all that, trying to find 
signs of life, all these are physical vital signs that indicate life. All of you are registering vital signs physically. That's why you're alive. So how do you know if someone is spiritually alive? It's simple. It's not complicated. All you need to do is look at their spiritual vital signs. If you're alive spiritually, you will register the spiritual vital signs that show you're spiritually alive. The problem is a lot of Christians don't know what those spiritual vital signs are, and that's why we're doing this series. You know, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7, 16. He said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We could say, by their vital signs, you will recognize them. It's not very difficult, but we need to know what the fruit is, what the vital signs are that indicate spiritual life. A believer will be recognized by the vital signs they manifest, which the book of 1 John gives so succinctly, verse by verse, categorically, we see this revealed in this amazing book. Now watch this. Spiritual vital signs not only indicate someone possesses spiritual life, but the stronger the spiritual vital signs, the greater the quality of a person's spiritual life. I mean, when your heart's pumping good, you have a great quality of physical life. When you register high on all of the levels of the spiritual indicators of spiritual life, guess what? Your quality of life rises big time. So 1 John tells us not only how we can know we possess eternal life, that's the primary purpose, but it also tells us how we can grow in eternal life. That's the secondary purpose. Now this morning, this has all been introduction up to this point, but now we're going to dive into the first vital sign or indicator of spiritual life. Now you need to go to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Vital sign number one is this, one word, fellowship. Can you repeat that word after me? What is it? Fellowship. Good. So here's the question. How do you know if you possess eternal life? Simple. Check yourself. Do you manifest? Is it clear that you show the vital sign of fellowship? Does it register in your life? If the vital sign of fellowship, is it present fellowship? Is the vital sign of fellowship part of your experience? You see, all Christians manifest the vital sign of fellowship. If you're genuinely saved, you will be experiencing genuine fellowship. There's no such thing as a Christian who has zero experience of fellowship. Does not exist. Sorry. Can't be. Because it is a necessary vital sign that shows you're spiritually alive. All spiritually alive people in Christ will manifest fellowship. Now, this morning, I want to give you one primary purpose or primary reason why fellowship is a vital sign of spiritual life, and then I want to share with you two characteristics of this fellowship, of this vital sign. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let's read the passage, then we'll take it apart. John begins his book this way, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Now we speak it about Jesus, right? This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, let's take this apart. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. You notice how John begins. He says, that which was from the beginning. Now, if you read the Gospel of John... That which was from the beginning is a reference to the Logos, isn't it? The pre-incarnate Christ or Jesus prior to his incarnation. But in 1 John, when John says that which is from the beginning, that's a reference to the beginning or time of Jesus' incarnation, a slight change. So in other words, we could read it this way. John's saying, that which was from the beginning, when I saw Jesus as he walked the earth. John goes on to describe what he saw when Jesus walked the earth. He says, that which we, we heard. See, I heard Jesus. I mean, he said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. We heard Jesus preach and give sermons and tell parables. That which we have seen with our eyes. Oh, I saw Jesus with my very eyes. That which we, he's speaking about himself, but also other eyewitnesses of the physical Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says, even after Jesus' resurrection, 500 people saw Christ at one time the 40 days before he ascended into heaven. John says, that which we have looked at and our hands have touched. I mean, we touched Jesus. We saw him. Jesus said, Thomas, put your, your, your touch my, my feet, my, my hands. Look. They ate with Jesus. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Yes, the word of God became life. And this word of life is the gospel that we preach. Verse 2, the life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Wow. Now, as you read that, you've got to be asking yourself, you know, why is John spending so much time emphasizing the physical aspects about Jesus. Do you see that? You probably go, why would you start a book and start, you've seen him and touched him and felt him and saw him? Why is that even necessary? What's going on here, John? Why would you begin the book that way? Well, throughout history, false teachers have come along. Even today, they do the same, and they have claimed that Jesus was not historical. He was not real, he's just a myth. Now, you think about it. If Jesus did not come into history, if he did not come in the flesh, then his death was not real, his resurrection was not real, your salvation is not real, your forgiveness of sins is not real, it is just a myth. Now, in the first century, the Greco-Roman world, the dominant thinking of that day was what we call philosophical dualism. And it really came from Plato and others around Plato, but it, it preached this philosophy that anything that was physical is evil, but anything that's spiritual is good, that's pure, but something physical, that, that's evil, that's of the world. And so they would deny anything of a religious nature that was physical, physical. you can't have something that's physical and pure. Now, out of that philosophy that dominated the day for really hundreds of years came several false teaching systems that were infecting the church, especially in that day and age, but 
and were undermining the Christian's faith in John's day and even into our day. A lot of this philosophy still exists in many of the cults today. Now, back then, uh, there were some cults known as Gnosticism. You may have heard of that. And that comes from the phrase, the, the core word there is to know. And so the Gnostics would go around and they would preach and they were trying to infiltrate the church and they were claiming a super knowledge apart from the physical whereby you could be saved. So they would deny anything as anything pure could never come from something that was physical and you're saying Jesus was physical, we deny him. No, 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 the way you're saved is through this super knowledge. The Greeks were into knowledge, right? And, uh, and that's how you're saved. And this was hard for the first century Christians to understand and combat. And then you had these, uh, another group called the Docetists, and there were other groups that I'm not going to go into. The Docetists also, and that comes from the phrase to seem, to seem, S-E-E-M. And the Docetists, they, they, they claimed that Jesus just seemed to be physical. He was there, but he was kind of like a phantom. He wasn't in the flesh. He wasn't truly God in human flesh. And when you understand the context of that day, you understand why John begins his letter refuting this false teaching right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. John is basically saying to everyone, of course Jesus came in the flesh. I saw him. I lived with him. I felt him. I touched him. I heard him. Jesus is our real Savior. He's our eternal God who took on human flesh. And we proclaim Jesus as the word of life. This is the message. This is the gospel we preach. Now, to what end, though, is John building? Why is he saying all this? Look now, if you would, at verse 3. And John says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus. Do you see that little phrase, so that you also? In the Greek, it's just one word. It's hina. It's, it's a clause, and it's literally translated, in order that. In other words, Jesus came in the flesh. We preach the gospel. He came. He died. He rose from the gra- grave. We can put our faith in him. This truly happened, and all of this has taken place, hina, so that... And here we have revealed the first vital sign of spiritual eternal life. The entire purpose of the incarnation, the entire purpose for the gospel being proclaimed is so that we might experience, so that this could happen, and it's this, so we could experience the miracle of fellowship. Now, that probably wasn't a huge moment for you, but it is for me, because I know the meaning a fellowship. This, this is the problem. We have reduced fellowship to coffee and donuts. It's a term that has lost its magnificence, its miraculous nature, its power, and its glory. And it grieves me, and I know it grieves the Holy Spirit. And the only way we can discover the beauty, the wonder, the glory of fellowship is we've got to go back. We've got to understand what this is all about. So take your Bibles, turn all the way to the book of Genesis. Keep your finger in 1 John, but go back to the book of Genesis because we've got to understand something that just is so awesome. We need to go back. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the account of God creating the universe and all that's in it and man and woman. And you've got to translate yourself, kind of go back in time and 
And, and let's read a little bit of what this must have been like. Chapter 1, let's start at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. Can you believe that? We've been created in the image and the likeness of God. Somehow, man and woman, male and female, these two genders somehow sum up the beauty of who God is in himself. And God made them male and female, and he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Go down to verse 31. And God saw all that he had made. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating it that he had done. Now, think, what must it have been like to have been Adam and Eve in a paradise in fellowship with God? Walking with God. The beauty, the glory, the majesty, the fulfillment of all that you could ever long for in this beautiful, glorious paradise and relationship with the Creator. God said, chapter 2, verse 17, But you, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, For when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Something will happen to this fellowship. And we know the story, don't we? Chapter 3, the serpent was cunning, crafty, just like he is today. Keeping people from the gospel and the fellowship, the glory of what God wants people now, even now, to experience with him. He's cunning. He's crafty. You can have it another way, but it always leads to brokenness and death and destruction. God says in chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate and she gave to her husband. He ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. They're starting to hide from God. Yes, fellowship is being severed. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. He's walking in the garden, the cool of the day. They used to enjoy these walks with God. But now they're hiding from God, just like we do today. They're going among trees and in the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. Fear comes in. The fellowship is being severed. At the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve hadn't even realized the depth of how they had fallen. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken After that, he drove the man out and he placed on the east side of the garden on the east cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Fellowship is broken because God's holy and now we are not because of our own choice. 
the condition of man from this point on in history is broken fellowship. But God in His great love, He sent His Son, born, took on human flesh, God in a body. Why? So that He could physically go to that cross and die and rise from the grave. So that a gospel of good news could be preached to all creation. Why? So that the immediate results could be faith in Jesus, and then we could experience in our lives, after being born again and receiving eternal life, the gift of fellowship being restored spiritually. One day, fellowship with God will be restored physically. That's the book of Revelation. Fellowship with God being restored spiritually is the book of 1 John. And what we have in the book of 1 John are all the evidences, the manifestations of the fact that fellowship with God has been restored. Now, the word fellowship, as we turn back to 1 John, it's mentioned twice here in these verses, is the word koinonia, but fellowship goes way beyond just, you know, drinking coffee and eating donuts. Literally, let me, the, the word koinonia literally means uh, authentic partnership, mutual participation. It means shared life. Let me give you a definition, okay, my definition of fellowship. Fellowship is the mutual life and love of those who are one in spirit. It's the mutual life and love of those who are one in spirit. And I've tried to like think through, rack my brain with how I could most illustrate this to you or best illustrate this to you. And the thing that I could only think of is when our boys were born. I can't, you know what it's like, your wife, she's walking around, you know what I'm saying? And it's beautiful, you know there's your child in there. But as a daddy, when Josh came out, and he's right there, and James and Luke... I mean, I, I, with trembling hands, I'm holding this boy. This is my flesh and blood. And the bond that is created is so deep to this day, I would give my life for any of my boys in a second. You see, this is fellowship. It is a bond of love that goes so deep that takes place with you and God when you're born again by the Spirit. It's powerful. It's mysterious. How can a holy God have such a bond eternally with me, a sinner? That's the miracle of salvation. It's deep. Fellowship is so deep and profound. Now, there are two dimensions of fellowship mentioned in verse 3 of 1 John. And the first is vertical fellowship with God. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. There's this fellowship, you see, with the Trinity that takes place in a believer. Those who believe in Jesus enter into this genuine union and bond with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's seen here in verse 3, but also all through Scripture, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God who has called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, may the grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. And we see, you know, Peter, his take 
would be 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus died to bring you in fellowship to God. Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace, or we could say fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Even when we sin as Christians, we can lose the joy of our fellowship with God, but never the bond, never the reality, never the relationship is ever lost. That's powerful. I'll never forget the fellowship with God I began to experience on the day of my salvation, July 27th, 1981. All alone in my room, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I was like, I can tell you, beloved, it was the greatest day of my life because God bonded himself to me. I don't know why. And I feel my heart beating right now even as I speak about that moment. God's life invading my soul. And all of a sudden, I begin to feel joy and love and peace and, and satisfaction and tears are flowing out. I'm experiencing the presence of God. It's fellowship with God because I'm born again. It's a sign that I belong to Jesus. Now I have now spiritual life. There's not only vertical fellowship with God that comes through being born again, but then there's a horizontal dimension of fellowship with other believers. You see, those who believe in Jesus not only enter into this genuine union with God, but we also enter into this genuine union with other believers who possess eternal life. That's what, again, verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. There's a horizontal dimension of fellowship. You see, the, our fellowship with God is so deep. We have fellowship with God by virtue of our fellowship with God. <clears throat> we become brothers and sisters in the same family of God. And so I look out here, you are my brothers and sisters. There is a bond that we share that is so deep. It's powerful. John 1.12, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, you're saved. He gave the right to become children of God. So I have the privilege of traveling all over the world. I remember when I went to Russia for the very first time in 1993. A long story, but I was taken into a prison. <laughs> they weren't throwing me there. They wanted me to visit and preach, and I didn't know where I was going. I was brought up to this room, and it was so powerful. I came into this dark room, and at the end of the, the, a table across from me, there were 12 men standing there. And I, I, I'm looking, and my eyes are adjusting, and I, I knew instantly these are brothers in the Lord. I could see Jesus in their eyes. And there's this fellowship, this bond. I've seen it everywhere I go. I don't even speak the same language as our brothers and sisters in China or Vietnam or India or Africa or wherever I've gone. There's this bond. They would die for me. I would die for them. They are my brother. They are my sister. Do you know this? If you don't know it, you're not saved. It's a sign. It's evidence. If this registers, you're born again. If it doesn't register, there's no reality of this. You can't con conjure this up on your own. This is what the Spirit of God does for those who are born again, who truly are saved, that belong to God. You have fellowship with God. You have fellowship with others. It's a bond that's so deep, it moves in you, and it never leaves you. One of the greatest descriptions of horizontal fellowship we have is in Acts chapter 2. 
This is beautiful. Peter preaches his first sermon, right? 3,000 come to faith. And in the outflow of believers that come to know Jesus, immediately you see his fellowship. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is fellowship. This is what happens when we go into our home communities. Fellowship. It's powerful. And I'll never forget the fellowship with other believers that I began to experience after July 27, 1981, I couldn't believe how much I had in common with these other believers. These people that I once thought were so strange, all of a sudden, I'm now one of them. All of a sudden, I found myself loving them and wanting to be with them and spend time with them and pray with them and talk with them and learn from them. I couldn't be around them enough. I wanted to do life with them. Is that you? If that's not you, why? Could it be because you don't know Jesus? That's something you have to work through. Why is fellowship the first vital sign, indicator that we possess eternal life? It's the reason Jesus came. It's the reason he died on a cross physically and rose from the grave. So that the gospel could be preached, we could believe, fellowship with God could be restored, fellowship with one another is made possible, and you know what all this leads to? It leads to this, the experience of joy, because verse 4 says, we write this to make our joy complete. We are created for fellowship, and through Christ, we experience it with God and then one another, and it all leads to joy, 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 joy. Wow. Let's talk about this at our tables. Would you talk about your joy? Can you share about the joy you have experienced in fellowship with God and other believers? Talk about that. Okay, this morning we've covered the first vital sign of spiritual eternal life. So again, the question, how can we know someone possesses physical life? You look for the person's physical vital signs. You look at their pulse. You look at their breathing. These are indicators of physical life. How do you know someone possesses spiritual life? You look for the person's spiritual vital signs. The first vital sign in the book of 1 John that indicates someone possesses spiritual eternal life is simple. It's fellowship. Why? It's the whole reason Jesus came in the flesh, why he died, why he rose from the grave. John saw him, felt him, experienced him. The whole purpose is so that, Hina, you could have fellowship restored with God with one another, and this leads to joy. That is the first indicator you possess spiritual life. So, now let's get real. we got to get real. The thing you're going to see about 1 John is it's black and white. It's light and darkness. It's in absolutes. There's no hiding. And that's how it is with God. God sees exactly where you are this morning. Sometimes we don't even know where we're at, but God knows, and that's where we have to look to His Word. So my question for you is this, are you experiencing fellowship with God? 
And are you experiencing fellowship with other believers? This is the first indicator of spiritual life. Now, the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5, says this. This is something we should do. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So every morning in this series, or if you're watching on video, there's going to be a type of a test. I'm going to give you the opportunity to test yourself, to put your life, your spiritual life to the test and evaluate, do you manifest this evidence of what God says will show everlasting life? If you say, yeah, I mean, I look at my life, Mark, there's fellowship with God and others, that's part of my experience. Well, that's evidence that you possess eternal spiritual life. Now, there are two benefits that we're going to experience in every message we will encounter here in the book of 1 John. And the first benefit is this, assurance. This is what I so long for you and for if you're watching on video, is that you would have a... If you were to die today, which would be a terrible thought even to introduce, but right now in your life, if you were to die today, do you know right now with an absolute total assurance that you're going to heaven? You see, as your pastor, and John is a pastor, and God, God wants there to be an exclamation point, not a question mark there about your own salvation. (laughs) I'm called to shepherd you. And number one in shepherding is that you know the people you shepherd are your sheep. I want to make sure you're part of the flock. And you need to make sure you're part of the flock. I'll do my job in preaching the Word of God if you'll be here to listen and then find confirmation that you pass all the tests and boom, you have assurance of your salvation. And that's what the book of 1 John, I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, Oida, that you have eternal life, confidence that you know it for sure. So this morning, as your pastor, I just have to say, hey, do you evidence fellowship with God and other believers? Is that registering? If yes, you have assurance that you're saved. If no, What a great moment to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Am I saved? What a great moment to believe on Jesus, receive the gift of everlasting life, and part of the package of everlasting life is fellowship begins with God and one another. That's the first indicator of everlasting life, fellowship, and that will give you assurance as you see it in your life. The second thing we're going to experience in our study in 1 John is what I just called, write down the word, life. Life. You see, John says, I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know you have eternal life. Eternal life is this. It's a quantity of life where you'll live forever with God in heaven, but it's also a quality of life. Eternal life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's Christ-likeness in your life. And that the quality of life that God gives you. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and might have it to the full. And what we're going to discover in the book of 1 John as we teach through this, your quality of spiritual life will just go through the roof as you're living out these vital signs. Just as if your heart, you know, goes up 10 notches healthier, your body's going to be healthier. Hey, if you improve in the spirit of the living God and his strength, these areas of vital signs, let me tell you, your spiritual life is going to certainly 
grow as well. You want to know how to improve the experience of your fellowship with God and one another? That's next Sunday's message. Next Sunday, vital sign number two, will not only build on what we've heard, it's going to reveal a new vital sign to show you have everlasting life, and it is also going to show you how you can experience fellowship with God and one another in a marvelous way. Let's pray.